You're listening to The Wildest Night in Vancouver, a podcast reliving the history, trauma, and legacy of the 1907 anti Asian Vancouver riots. Produced by the students of History 271 at the University of British Columbia. Episode 2 Anti Asian Sentiment Along the Pacific Northwest Coast. Their system of coolie labor devised competition as the low rate of wages paid is insufficient to support ordinary laboring classes. Hence, the Chinese are gradually monopolizing and controlling many industries which have hitherto afforded employment to the permanent population of the province. Without contributing anything towards this, the Chinaman comes in. Taking advantage of our sill and our toil and our struggles, and drives us from the fields of industry which we have created, and which our race alone could have created. The Legislative Assembly of British Columbia, recognizing the evil consequences resulting from the continued immigration of Chinese, has repeatedly pressed on the government of Canada to take some steps to mitigate the intolerance mischief which the Chinese has done and are doing to the people and province of British Columbia. Wildest Night in Vancouver was the culmination of years of prejudice, discrimination, and racism. On September 7, 1907, all hell broke loose across North America, from Washington State to Vancouver, BC. Mobs of white, racist individuals stampeded through the streets and trashed Asian businesses, breaking windows and causing pandemonium. They were attempting to scare Asians out of the country. Famous photos of the aftermath of these riots in Vancouver depicts 130 Powell Street. A policeman stands outside the small shop while talking to a well dressed white individual. The store behind the policeman is demolished. Not a pane of glass has been left untouched, and in the doorway stands a smiling young woman cradling a baby in her arms. To the right of the girl is a young man looking towards the camera, and to the far right of the picture is a man in a turban who we've come to understand is the best friend of the store's owner. This was not the only store affected during the riots. The photo manages to capture the tragedy and loss that occurred while maintaining a level of hope for the future. This episode, we will be examining the roots cause of the discrimination against Asians and how this eventually created requirements necessary for the wildest night in Vancouver. Most of the anti Asian sentiment that would find its way into the beginning of the 20th century was directed at Asian populations as a whole rather than a specific group. Asians were discriminated against regardless of the nation where they had emigrated from. This sentiment was not unique to Canada, but had instead originated from the states where Asians had been primarily criticized for taking the jobs of Americans. We can trace these sentiments specifically back to the building of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1864. 
Asians looking for work would find jobs in primary industries, notably in forestry, agriculture, mining services, and the fishing industry. With the building of railways, however, Asians were repeatedly taken advantage of and sent to work in the most dangerous parts of the job while simultaneously being paid less. These men, who were forced to work for nearly nothing, put a number of white individuals out of work. In outperforming white men, Asians created a level of competition that whites couldn't keep up with. The resentment that followed would transpire into one of the main reasons whites wanted all Asians out of the country. These concerns were mirrored in Canada. In 1883, an article titled Chinese Immigration in British Columbia follows the speech of MP Mr. Shakespeare. The CPR's construction to unite the country was still in progress, yet it seemed that the immediate concern was the worry over Asian men taking the jobs of whites. Why, sir? We've only to cast our eyes over the state of California, and we know from what we have heard, and possibly some of us know it from personal observation, that thousands of white men have had to leave that state, many of them with their families, and they were compelled to leave it because they found it impossible to compete with the Chinese. In a recent visit to the UBC Rare Books, Chan Gallery, we managed to find a section that echoed these sentiments. Firstly, at the most basic level, whites made it extraordinarily difficult for Asians to survive. The railroad offered wages that people could just about live on, but Asians were almost slaves. What the whites didn't know was that, by paying wages that were nearly nothing, they facilitated the destruction of their own livelihood. Managers of the railroad hired Asians because they did not have to pay them nearly anything at all, and they were also willing to do the most dangerous work. A quote from the Royal Commission on Chinese Immigration illustrates this point. In less than six months, they had Chinese doing everything, and the foreman said that, taken together, the Chinese did 80% as much as the whites, while the wages of the former were $31 a month and they boarded themselves. The white laborers, they gave $45 a month in board. It isn't surprising, then, that Asians were regarded with intense suspicion. If these people willingly worked for almost nothing, they were believed to have been thieves, that wanted to steal equipment and valuables. In the Chang Gallery, we discovered a small red book titled Private Instructions to Guards in Charge of Chinese. The implication made in this respect was that Asians were severely distrusted. While guards were needed on the railway to protect workers from Native American attacks, these guards were used for the intentional purpose of managing the Chinese, ensuring that they did not steal CPR property. We can now see that the Asians were seen as a minority directly responsible for stealing the livelihood of white individuals. In addition to outworking and outperforming the whites, Asians were heavily distrusted. These are all factors that come to affect the 1907 riots, and they only repeat themselves as the years continue. One of the more creative ways the Canadian government attempted to dispatch Asians out of the country was by attempting to take the moral high ground. Going back to Geo A. Walken in 1879, his fourth reason for the justification of the growing levels of prejudice directed against the Asian population had to do directly with the grotesque nature of slavery. He refers to the Asians in his first point as a group in a state of semi-bondage, if not 
of absolute slavery. And Lamb proceeds in his fourth point to argue against the very nature of slavery itself. What he neglects to include is that the Canadian government and the managers of the railroad industry are directly responsible for the Asians being in last state of semi-bondage. It's an absurd piece of writing that recognizes the present state of atrocity but then purposely fails to acknowledge the reasons for which it occurred. The argument is because we don't support slavery in Canada. These people need to get out of our country because they willingly subject themselves to it. While Asian men were identified largely as people who would work for nearly nothing, Asian women soon became identified and generalized as prostitutes. This is again stated in Attorney General Welcome's report, The Chinese Question. People in power that repeatedly spoke out against the Chinese-like Attorney General Welcome and MPs such as Mr. Shakespeare encouraged white Canadians to do the same. This views towards Asians which had been filled by powerful political figures would continue to transpire out of control. By the end of the railroad's construction, anti-Asian sentiment was still prevalent. The last spy, Donald Pormuti, on the Pacific coast attracted powerful and important men from the entire country. The photo taken of the moment, which is now held in the Chan collection of the UBC Rare Books Library, portrays a group of purely white individuals of both upper and lower class men surrounding the CPR's railway. There are no Asians to be seen here even though they were almost single-handedly responsible for building the entire railroad. In 1884, Prime Minister John A. Macdonald appointed the Royal Commission on Chinese Immigration to investigate the restriction of Chinese immigrants, with the primary purpose of researching Canadian opinions on Asian immigration and their population in general. With the conclusion of the commission in 1885, it was established that most of the anti-Asian sentiment was founded on false stereotypes, which were inflated through public and political echoing. Despite this conclusion, the commissioners of the project sympathized with the majority of the white laborers, finding themselves in the pockets of political and business kingpins. They called for the restriction of immigrant workers from Asia through taxation, which assured that the workers making their way across the sea weren't broke, bastardly, or diseased. Instead, they were relatively financially successful and hardworking. Chaplot and Gray, the commissioners of the doctrine, proposed a $10 fee in response, which was later bumped up to $5 later that year, and then $100 in 1902 on Chinese immigration to the country. This allowed for the accumulation of $23 million over the period of what has been coined as the head taxes installation, which translates to approximately $1 billion today. On the surface, this tax was justified as a means to finance health inspection on the Chinese passengers on their way to the West, but in reality, it was used to essentially pad the government's bank account and help finance construction of the railway. By 1907, the resentment against Asians finally accumulated to create the Asiatic Exclusion League. This was a broader organization of one of the same name founded in San Francisco, California. Two years prior, which focused on its bigotry towards primarily Japanese and Korean populations. The Asiatic Exclusionary League was a racist organization formed in 1907 with the prime goal of driving Asians out of BC. The mayor of Vancouver, as well as the chief of police and the MP of Vancouver, were among the primary members of the league. During the first public meeting, the Vancouver MP, Robert George McPherson, lobbied the public to the despicable nature of the, quote, Asiatics who are swarming into our country every month, end quote. The league attracted mass support within the months of its formation. 
and the lawlessness and chaos that occurred during the three days of riot was left unchecked as the police and mayor were sided with the mob. In conclusion, the mob went unimpeded for their events, with a total of three members finding conviction for their crimes, only one of which turned over into an actual guilty verdict. In culmination, all of these factors would finally lead to the wildest night in Vancouver. The Wildest Night in Vancouver is produced by students in History 271 at the University of British Columbia under the direction of Tristan Grunel. This series was sponsored by the UBC Department of History and supported by the Public History Initiative. Special thanks to the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT, and 101.9 CITR Campus Radio. Thank you for listening.